Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Money Girl Podcast. I really appreciate you downloading this show and spending a little time with me. My name is Laura Adams. I'm an award-winning finance author who's been bringing you personal finance and small business tips every week since 2008. I also work with select brands as an on-camera financial spokesperson, consumer advocate, and do writing and speaking work. Here on the show, I cover a wide range of personal and small business money topics, including building credit, managing debt, retirement investing, real estate, cutting taxes, insurance, money management strategies, and lots more. This show helps you get the knowledge and motivation to prioritize your finances, build wealth, and have more security and less stress. So if you're ready for more knowledge, resources, and motivation to manage money the best way possible and create a richer life, you are in the right place. Be sure to subscribe to the show and participate. This is a really active community. I get a lot of interaction from you. Uh, I so appreciate your reviews of the show. You also send comments and questions to me. You can leave a message 24-7 on our voicemail line at 302-364-0308. I love getting your questions. And you can also go to lauradadams.com to use my contact page if you want to email me directly and learn more about my work, books, and money courses. If you've been listening to the show the past few weeks, you know that during March, I celebrated Women's History Month by bringing you interviews with diverse women, sharing their financial expertise and success tips. And I've got one more for you today. I'm joined by Maya Lau, the creator, host, and executive producer of the podcast, Other People's Pockets, which is about other people's money. Maya is an award-winning former investigative reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and The Advocate newspaper in Louisiana. Her work has been pretty amazing and has led to the ouster of the warden of the notorious Angola prison in Louisiana and helped spur new laws that made police disciplinary files more transparent in California. She has a deep curiosity about money, the beliefs surrounding it, 
and the various paths people take to achieve success. We had a terrific conversation. Some of the things we touched on include Maya's journey from award-winning investigative reporter to executive podcast producer and host, what she's learned by interviewing guests about their financial upbringing, income, and wealth, how money beliefs and socioeconomic identification may change your financial outcomes, the counterintuitive lessons she learned from her mom about balancing sacrifices for the future with enjoying life in the moment. We talk about her biggest money mistakes and wins that have transformed her financial life and the tools she uses to successfully budget and aim for paying herself first. And she talks about a disappointing gender pay gap that she discovered from a coworker and how women can avoid potential pay disparities in their careers. So let's get into it. Here's my interview with Maya. Maya, I am so excited to have you on the Money Girl podcast. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about who you are. What do you do? I am the host, creator, and an executive producer of a podcast called Other People's Pockets, which is a personal finance show where I interview people and ask them how much money they make, how they got there, how they feel about their money and their upbringing around money, stuff like that. I'm a journalist. I used to be an investigative reporter at the LA Times and at other publications, and generally I'm a creative, I guess you would say. Yeah, I love it. If someone is listening who is thinking, I want to do that, I want to be a reporter, I want to be a journalist, um, how, do you, how do you get started? How did you start that career? Well, it's a complicated question because journalism, like many in- industries, now are is has changed so much it is not necessarily easy or lucrative um but in terms of how i did it um i think that there is some something that somebody could take away there's some things that you could replicate so it started actually when i was in the peace corps in senegal in west africa and i was writing and blogging and doing all the stereotypical things that one does. And I just realized I I really wanted to write and I wanted to keep exploring the world and asking questions. And I was able to get a job after that at the New York Times as a news assistant, um, which is mostly like an organizational kind of administrative job, but you you see a publication from the inside. And I learned a lot from that, but I, during that process, realized I really wanted to be a reporter. I didn't want to be, I was kind of on an an editor track or like a web producer track when I was there. And I wanted to be the one that was out in the field, like my byline on an article, like I was the one to interview all these people. And it was really hard to move up in a big organization like that as the person at the bottom. And so some of my mentors recommended that I should go to a much smaller market, to a small paper, and specifically, like, one idea they threw out was you should become a crime reporter in the South. Um, The reason for that is it, it often is something that an intro reporter covers. I mean, there's many reasons, but, like, sometimes it can require, like, a younger, you know, spry person who can run around all the time, but also because crime intersects with basically everything. It's life, it's death, it's money, it's politics, it's the law. So I did that. I went to the Shreveport Times in Louisiana, and 
I was a crime reporter and I learned a lot. And that experience um, is still something people can do. I mean, obviously, a lot of papers have shut down and are shutting down across the U.S. and are downsizing. And it can be really hard to work at a place like that. But it is good experience, especially if you kind of go in being like, I'm going to be here for a year or two. This is not the rest of my life. Um, you can learn a lot at really any kind of publication that's that's trying to do decent work. So I did that. I ended up getting approached by a bigger paper in Louisiana called The Advocate, based in Baton Rouge. And I moved there, and I also covered criminal justice. And then after a while, the LA Times came knocking, and they offered me a job also covering criminal justice in LA. And I went and covered the LA County Sheriff's Department. And I always was kind of an investigative reporter. Um, you know, it people kind of have different bents in reporting, but I always tended toward the like accountability pieces, the the ones that would maybe expose something. I wasn't as much of like a narrative or character um driven writer. So yeah, that that's kind of my path. And then you know, going into journalism, always knew that money was not going to be super abundant. I was totally eyes wide open about the industry. I knew that it was a sinking ship and that it was kind of crazy to go into journalism, but I didn't care in my 20s. You know, I felt like this is just important work. Like, why would I want to make a lot of money? I want to have an impact. Like, over time, I got a little older. I ended up having a kid. I got married. Classic story, like your priorities change a little bit and you kind of realize like, okay, it just doesn't feel cute anymore to like not be able to afford things. And I started to get really frustrated with the ceiling that I felt like there was in journalism. So I was at the LA Times was my latest reporting job. And when people would post jobs for the New York Times or ProPublica or any number of prestigious institutions, like I found myself just not being excited about them. Like, why would I want to go work there? Like, it's going to be the kind of the same. Like, I'll make, you know, a little more money, but not that much. And anyway, I not not to make it sound like I'm only driven by money because I'm not, but I think I just started to have bigger questions about how money works in the world, in my life, in the lives of people around me. And starting like that became kind of my investigation, like that became interesting to me and thinking about what could I do next? Like, I never thought I'd want to leave traditional journalism, but maybe I do. And that's kind of what led me to this point, to this podcast that I'm doing asking these questions. And um, anyway, that's a long way of answering your question, but that's a little bit about me. So you've interviewed people for your podcast and kind of you're digging into their financial lives. I'd love to know what are some things you've learned from those interviews, maybe some financial takeaways that have, you know, have surprised you or maybe it hasn't surprised you. What have you learned? Yeah, I would say that most people have some kind of discomfort around money, even though they've agreed to come on the show. They know exactly what it's about. They're coming on the show either because they believe that it's important to kind of break the barrier and just talk about money, even though it's uncomfortable. Most people have some kind of interesting story about their upbringing around money. You know, I, I don't know that I've ever talked to anyone who's like, 
nope, totally normal. Don't feel anything about money. It was, you know, like everyone's like, oh my gosh, well, there's the time that my mom, you know, put everything on credit cards or the time that like we didn't talk about how my dad was homeless for part of the time or whatever. Like there's always something. So that's number one is that people, most people have some sort of baggage, not that that's a bad thing, but like have some sort of history and money beliefs that they may not even realize they have or where they come from. And something I've learned is talking about socioeconomic class. I often ask people not only how much money do you make, but what socioeconomic class do you consider yourself a part of? And what what were you growing up? Some people are totally fine identifying that. Some people feel uncomfortable with that, even though they're fine talking about how much money they make. Or they're fine talking about it, but it, it's, it's conflicted. Like I was talking to somebody who grew up, um, in her words, poor, um, working class. She now is probably upper middle class, but she feels working class. Like she doesn't feel, it's kind of like if somebody suddenly said to me like, oh, Maya, you're rich. That would feel like, no, I'm not, you know. Even when people go, quote, unquote, up in class, they might feel like they're betraying their working class roots. They might feel like, but working class people are my people. Like, those are my values. I don't want to be described as upper middle class, even though financially speaking, maybe technically they are. But like this idea that class is, it's a cultural thing, too. It's not just about money. And you can be in more classes than one at one time. You can be in interclasses. Like, I think that is one of the kind of interesting things to come out and to see how everybody approaches that question. Yeah, I'd love to know what you may have taken away from your upbringing, if there's anything that you you felt has hurt or helped your financial success in life. I know a lot of people say, oh, my parents taught me so much. And, you know, other people say, no, I, you know, I had bad role models when it came to money. You know, I'd love to know if you've got any um, sort of things that have stuck with you from childhood related to finances. Yeah, I mean, by all outward appearances, we had an upper middle class life. But I think within that, there's a keeping up with the Joneses um, thing going on where even when money is tight, you still do the things that keep up this lifestyle, even if it is all on credit cards. So that, you know, my parents were got divorced when I was around nine, and money was definitely tighter after that point. But like, somehow, for the most part, my parents were able to, A, shield us from the stress of it, but also kind of maintain what was happening. But I later learned that, like, my mom was, like I mentioned, was putting everything on credit cards. She eventually paid it off. But she did things like when we were um, teenagers, my sister and I, she took us to Europe. We had never been to Europe before. She just felt like it was a formative time in our lives to travel. And I realized travel is a huge privilege and, you know, it's not something that everybody can do. And she even had a financial planner who we joke about. His name was John Miller, such a common name. Like, he was very bland. He he advised my mom to to sell our house and move into a very, very small apartment and, like, keep budgets tight. And, you know, financially speaking, that was probably the right thing to do. But my mom just felt like 
I don't want to rip these kids out of this house. And I want them to have these experiences. And so in a weird way, I know this like literally goes against every bit of financial advice, but I think that I learned that sometimes you got to live, then you got to find a way to pay for it afterward. But like, I'm grateful that she took us to Europe. I'm much more, I think, responsible in large part due to like, I have the privilege of I'm making okay money now. So I don't have to put everything on credit cards. But yeah, I, I think I still like in terms of you asked me like kind of the lessons, like, I think I kind of learned the lesson of like, life is for living and like, hustle and find a way to pay that off. Don't just minimize your life to a box. It's okay to live a little. <laughs> I don't know how that sounds to someone who gives people financial advice, but um, but yeah. <laughs> no, I agree with that philosophy. I do believe that there's this balance that we're all trying to perfect between enjoying today, but also sacrificing for tomorrow if needed. But if you sacrifice everything today, um, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're going to be happy or tomorrow is going to be happy. You know, there is this balance. And I think it is a struggle for everyone to to figure out what that is. Um, And like you said, Sometimes there are just times in life where having an experience is, it's the right time. You should do it. And if you wait, it will not be the same. Or, you know, even if you're older, you may not have the health, you may not have the, um, you know, the freedom, the flexibility to do some things that you can do when you're younger. So yeah, it, it there there is that that fine line that everybody has to find for themselves. And when you kind of tip that scale and you find that you are putting everything on credit cards and maybe you don't have a way to pay that off, you know, that's when you really have to back off and, and find some solutions. Um, but no, I, I would not recommend that people live an incredibly frugal life and, and really sacrifice too much now just to be able to say, oh, well, I'm going to have, you know, X amount of dollars when I retire. Although we all need goals, um, and there's been a movement, the the FIRE, the financial mm-hmm. independence, right. retire early movement to like sacrifice, sacrifice, save, 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 and, and retire right. super early. And that may be great for some people who- For just, some people. Yeah. Right. If you're dreaming of that, you just, you know, you really don't like your, your job or you want to change careers, you want to radically change your lifestyle, that may be- a fantastic goal. Um, but for most people, I think there is a little bit more of a balance there. So yeah, we all have to find that. So I love that she taught you that. <laughs> well, I don't think she was meaning to, but um, you know, I also think that, like you mentioned the fire thing, I think about that a lot because I've listened to fire podcasts and, you know, heard people talk about that and and stripping everything down and you know living in your mom's basement and only like never eating out or whatever and again like kudos like that's awesome if if that works for you and makes you happy i also wonder if for some people like it's their personality some people even if they weren't part of the fire movement they they like to be very minimalist they like to make all their own food they like to um not own a lot of things. You know, it's like, is it that you're so virtuous in doing fire or is it like your personality lends itself toward this? You know what I mean? Like, 
different strokes for different folks. And I also think like financial advice, like it's it has to be one size fits all when it's like in a book or like if you're going to be preaching to a large number of people, like, of course, you're going to say, like, don't live beyond your means. Like, you're not you don't want to, like, put out advice that's going to harm people. But I also think, like, what's interesting about my podcast and talking to individual people or like, it's more like, what did you do in your life? Like, not what's the advice for everybody, but like, what worked for you? And like, if you ask my mom what worked for her, like, it's not the advice that you would want to give to other people, but it's, it is what happened for her, you know? So I think that's kind of what's interesting is like finding like the reality of like, okay, but how did you make this work? Because maybe it's not advisable, but it's just real life. Money Girl is sponsored by Claritin. If you're like me and you suffer from allergies, you know this time of year can be pretty rough. There's a lot of sneezing, itchy eyes, congestion, and they can really hold you back from living the life you want to live. Luckily, for those with allergies, you can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This is a product designed for serious allergy sufferers. It's got two ingredients in one pill that relieve allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double-action combo of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant relieves all the symptoms that you suffer. And what I love about Claritin-D is that it starts working in as little as 30 minutes. Plus, it's non-drowsy, so you can still make the most of your day. I can take Claritin-D and then get on the mic and record a podcast without being too congested. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Maya, what's the biggest financial mistake you think you've ever made? This is like a hard one to answer because, of course, I've made a million mistakes, um, most of which are like very mundane, like spending too much or or whatever. Um, I think that I feel like it's been a mistake to – I think I've been very judgmental about money. I think I've been very judgmental about people who care about money maybe been like that's that's shallow or that's I don't like that way of thinking and I think that now I'm trying to be more like curious about it like huh 
I want to learn more about entrepreneurship. That's not something that ever felt accessible to me, um, even though it probably was. But I didn't think of it as like, you you know, everyone should learn something about entrepreneurship or running a business. I think that I, yeah, been been a little like judgmental and and closed off in the past to the idea of making money and that like it's okay to make money. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a weird answer, but I do feel like now that I'm trying to be less judgmental and trying to be a little more curious, it's very freeing and it's very interesting to be like, oh, there's a different world out there for me potentially if I want to tap into it. And I think I never thought that I could be a part of that before. What about the best thing that you've done financially? Maybe some some wins that you're appreciative of? I have gotten pretty decent at budgeting. I use YNAB, uh, which is stands for You Need a Budget, uh, which is an app that helps you budget. And yeah, it's just helped me to maintain a sense of control over my finances. I'm not always perfect at it. I'm not like, oh, yeah, YNAB always tells me I have extra money left over and it's all going to savings. Like, no, like sometimes it's it's all a mess and then I have to contact YNAB support. But um, not to make this about YNAB, but in terms of like, I think that have gotten good at caring about every single transaction and knowing where that money comes from and where it goes. I think I've also, one thing that I'm really starting to do this year, I've always intended to do it, but is, um, I mean, I've, for, for a few years, I've paid myself first, like pay my retirement. I, I have my money kind of already channeled into different accounts, but what would happen sometimes is I, we have an emergency fund or just like a general savings fund that kind of gets dipped into every now and then. Cause it's like, well, like, we had this huge purchase, like we had to buy a mattress or something like, I guess we'll, you know, dip like a little baby step into the, into the savings. And what I'm trying to do now is like, I would rather have credit card interest. Like I would rather the credit card company get mad at me and come after me, which of course they're not like literally like banging on my door, but I would rather not touch the savings and then let the the fact that I didn't pay my credit card in full be motivation for me to try to make more money that month to um, cover the bill. In other words, like really protecting my savings at all costs, as opposed to I think for many years I protected having a zero balance on my credit card every month. But sometimes that meant dipping into savings, if that makes sense. So I'm like, I'm trying to pay off I'm trying to pay off my credit card but I'm trying to like super protective about my savings and not using it as like oh well this month I can dip into it a little bit. Yeah, we have to accomplish multiple things with money and I think that trips up a lot of people because they kind of think it's either or like should I pay off my credit card debt or save for retirement? 
Well, you got to mm-hmm. do both, you know, and yeah. and that's um, that can be difficult for people to kind of follow those parallel tracks with their finances. And um, yeah, you hit on something that's important: the the paying yourself first. Basically, it's just a top down approach where you're taking care of your goals first. You're keeping your savings. You're making sure that you're doing what's best for you before you do what's best perhaps for for creditors. Right. And the problem was like I was paying myself first into savings, but then I was dipping into it later, you know? So like yeah, it's it's hard. Like it's taken me years to be like, I was putting, I was paying myself first into savings. But then the problem is, at the end of the month, I was like feeling like I could dip into savings. So then I, you know what I mean? Like the money was flowing in and then I was taking it out. <laughs> it wasn't sticking to savings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, balancing all of those multiple priorities it's pretty challenging, and it takes a while for a lot of people to to get that right. And a lot of the questions that I get are related to those priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, figuring out what they are and and making sure you're doing a little bit of a bunch of different things is really the way um, to to achieve success. My since this is Women's History Month, when this show will air, I'd love to ask you if you've had any challenges or even advantages in your career, either in the past or now, due to being a female, being a woman in in the industry? Are there any challenges that have come up? Yeah, I've I've gotten paid less as a woman. And I know that because I was able to see some of the salaries of my white male colleagues at the LA Times. Um, So I'm talking about the time that I was at the LA Times. I know that I was underpaid. It sucked. And, you know, and you kind of, it's weird, you know, when you're like, oh, yeah, I am the statistic that we all know about. Like, it is here in the numbers. I think, like, the important thing to do with that is, you know, a lot of women, and I've done this too, a lot of women tend to talk to other women in the workplace about, how much money they make and how much they should ask for in a raise or or whatever because we tend to really I've had to learn like you got to ask the white men what they make that's information you really want and even if that means random uh, LinkedIn messages to white men in your industry or people who left your job or or people you work alongside I ended up getting the the numbers of my white male um, like not just that I got the information, but I actually would talk to them. Yeah, I think that um, that's just an important thing to to realize that you need to do. It's a very real thing, and that's part of why I just think it's so important to talk about money and to just not assume that you're that that you're being paid what you should be because maybe you're not. Yeah, in your case, what do you think some of those underlying causes were of that gender pay gap? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think, you know, some of it is systemic where if somebody had come from another publication that already paid them more and then they once it came to the L.A. Times, then they already needed to be paid more because the offer needed to be even higher than where it was previously. And like that could go into like 
the opportunities that men get that women don't like you know i don't know i don't know necessarily that anyone sat down and was like hmm maya well she's a woman we're gonna pay her less like I think it it has to do with like where I had come from before and what I was making before and what I was okay with accepting. And I, I don't know. I think that there can be really many reasons. I think, you know, you you often hear that men ask for raises more often and just are fine with that and like that they're fine with pointing to their potential versus their past work. And women tend to be like, well, I haven't proven that I've done anything yet, so I don't get to ask for a raise. But men feel more entitled to be like, pay me based on how great you think I will be. You know, there's there's maybe some of that. I definitely will admit to at times feeling like I don't want to ask for a raise because I'm actually really happy in my job and the flow of it and maybe the flexibility of it at times. And I don't, it's like I don't want to call attention to myself because I'm like, I have things really good. Like, I don't want them to expect more from me right now. Like, I'm working hard, but I don't want them to, like, expect now that I'm going to respond at midnight to their messages. So I want to, like, preserve, like, things are good right now. You know, don't look at me. Don't, don't, I don't want them to, I don't want to be that person on the spreadsheet that's like, why are we paying her so much more money? You know, what is she doing? So I don't know. I think that, that it, it's so many factors that go into that. Yeah, absolutely. Your age, location, income, education, industry, there's lots of different factors that go into it. But yeah, I think what you're saying is the the point is to understand that it it happens and do your best to educate yourself about what your true value is and ask for it. Right. Yeah, that's so important. Maya, thank you so much. Where can listeners go to learn more about you and your show? Yeah, my podcast is called Other People's Pockets, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you find podcasts. And I'm on Twitter at Maya Lau, M-A-Y-A-L-A-U. I'm on Instagram and TikTok at It's Maya Money. And I would love to hear from anyone and everyone. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Maya so much for coming on the show. That's all for now. I'll talk to you next week. Until then, here's to living a richer life. Money Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. It's audio engineered by Steve Rickyberg with editing by Adam Cecil. Our podcast and advertising operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. Our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchins. Our marketing and publicity associate is Davina Tomlin. And our intern is Cameron Lacey. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Yeah.